0: Fed Square proudly acknowledges that Federation Square is situated on the lands of the Goon and Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pays respect to their Elders past and present. Hello and welcome to the Anything But Square podcast. This is the first episode of our three-part series celebrating Fed Square's history, heritage and architecture. Today, we'll be talking to Rob Hyatt and James Lesh about the long and complicated history of Melbourne's search for a square and the journey that it took to build it.
1: Hi, my name's Rob Hyatt. I'm Manager of Education and Visit Experience at the Koori Heritage Trust. We're a cultural centre based at Federation Square. I would like to do an acknowledgement of the country, acknowledge the lands of the Trisha owners that Uh, we sit on, being the people of the Kulin Nations and in particular the Wurundjeri people and pay my respects to their elders both past and present. So the Koori Heritage Trust is based at Federation Square and as an Aboriginal cultural organisation, part of what we do in our work is talk about the culture of the land of Victoria and the various nations right across Victoria, but sitting on the country that we do based at Federation Square, we run quite a few tours and do a lot of work within that space of educating the broader public about the history of Melbourne, the history of Federation Square from an Aboriginal perspective. There's a few points in and around that. Part of that is naming and understanding Aboriginal context in terms of language, that in the area of the Wurundjeri people, the whole of the area of Melbourne, it is known as Nam, and that falls under. spoken language of the Wurundjeri people which is the Woiwurrung language as part of that obviously Melbourne has quite a strong history you know going way back before the enterprise sailed up what we now know as the Yarra River and the landscape itself was a lot of wetlands the river itself was a flooding river and so it provided a much different space to what we see now and in that context the Yarra River itself was actually known in Wurrung language as Birrarung. And Birrarung translates to River of Mists and Shadows. And so Federation Square, sitting right beside that river, actually sits beside Birrarung. And so it is a very, very different site, but it is quite interesting from the point of view that we see a little bit of that in the you know, city of Melbourne and the walk that we have along the river today, known as Birrarung Mar. It actually does translate to beside the River of Mists and Shadows. That culture is still a part of our landscape today. And while it might not be part of a natural landscape, it is part of the built environment. So where Federation Square sits actually sits on sites of ceremony. And those sites of ceremony actually go all the way through to the MCG, which is around about a 15 minute walk from federation square as well and so being a site of ceremony it actually captured what we see as the five nations of the Kulin nations so the Wurundjeri people or the Wurundjeri speaking language clans the Bunurong people, Djarjarung people, Tungurung and the Wathurung people and so in that whole area that actual ceremony was known as Tandaram across those languages and so that Tandarum used to occur anywhere from Federation Square, or what we now know as Federation Square, all the way through to the MCG today. It was modified and changed over time, basically to sustain the city that we have now. From an Aboriginal perspective, though, how the people lived on the land was dictated by the landscape itself in terms of what was hunted. And so the whole of the landscape was utilized in that sort of sense. And we're looking at a spread right across what we now know as metropolitan Melbourne. And so the area of Federation Square has quite a rich traditional history of ceremony and a rich traditional history of life within that area. And that history can still be found at Federation Square today, in particular with the Koori Heritage Trust commemorating the revival of the Tandaram Ceremony, where we virtually went 150 years without that ceremony where the Kulin nations weren't able to practise. And those five nations are coming back and actually able to practise that traditional ceremony today at Federation Square, I think is, is quite amazing. And the fact that it's commemorated in some way actually means that it is a cultural site again.
0: Melbourne's rich Aboriginal history has been instrumental in what the square is today. But the square itself may never have come to fruition without the push from colonial Melburnians looking for a common gathering place. Robert Hoddle's 1837 survey of Melbourne did not include a town square. This may have been due to economic factors – Melbourne was founded and developed by land speculators – or political factors – government desires to prevent large-scale gatherings. However, even from the 19th century, this was recognised as a missing element there were successive calls for a square throughout the 20th century. This desire for a square drew upon European models. The square as a symbolic centre, the classic site of civic belonging.
2: My name is James Lesh and I am a research fellow at the University of Melbourne in the Melbourne School of Design in ACAHACH, the Australian Centre for Architectural History, Urban and Cultural Heritage when Norbert established in the 1830s and Norbert Hoddle, the the, the town surveyor, lays the city. It's a deliberate decision to not... Put a square into the into the city, uh, and the reason for that is that Melbourne, unlike say Sydney or unlike the, the cities in Tasmania, was not a penal settlement. It was a free settlement, and so the idea was how can we maximise free enterprise, maximise uh, income in the settlement, and that would be would be by selling off as much of the land that's surveyed as possible. And so there was no reservation made. There's also a broader political context to, the, to this too, and you've got to remember the 1830s. It's a very tumultuous time. In terms of revolutions, in terms of the British Empire, in terms of, of the loss of American colonies, and there's a, an intention as well to ensure that the people wouldn't have a place necessarily to, to congregate, the working class people who come to congregate in order to be able to, in effect, overthrow the political order. Uh, at, at this time, it's the Chartist movement demanding greater political rights and, and, and meeting in London and meeting throughout the United Kingdom, and there's also, uh, and also in Paris, is being redesigned by Baron Haussmann at this time to create. Wide, I see goes boulevards but on top of the former medieval city. And that, again, was a deliberate intention to stop the possibility of a, another revolution in France by uh, through urban planning and through urban design. And so it's these ideas that are, that are circulating, that are coming to Melbourne, that are preventing sort of that mixture of free enterprise and that, those political political fears of, of trying to control the people that would be in Melbourne uh, that would come to settle. And this becomes even more, um, more important as the gold rushes occur in the 1850s into the 1860s as well. There were there were continued debates once Melbourne begins to come of its own once it gets declared by Queen Victoria a city once it starts to build up tremendous tremendous wealth during the gold rushes and, and then after the gold rushes since the 1880s and the marvelous Melbourne period there's an emergence of a very strong civic culture uh, and the effect of that of that civic culture in Melbourne of the kind of proud Melbourne into a a city city uh, as home they do have a strong desire to see a dismissing element this idea of a city squares being introduced but ultimately what ha- what happens is and even as even as there are and there are various plans uh, whether it's in the 1850s and 60s whether it's in the 1880s or even into the early 20th century there are various plans for squares uh across the center of melbourne but it, with the parklands in effect that ring melbourne would have to suffice to summarize uh it would be fair to say that 19th and early 20th century civic idealism was insufficient to overcome the proponents of free enterprise, who really wanted to prioritise increased private land holdings as well as enhanced street circulation for pedestrians and uh, for carriages. And that was, those were both seen as more important than creating a public square. The effect of a public square would have been to turn out a city street, or to make a city block public, uh, public land, and having to take that over from free enterprise. And so that, that wouldn't happen. So the various proposals that were created for a public square, such as in front of Parliament uh, at the eastern edge of the city, as well as uh, uh, early plans from the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, for Federation Square, where Federation Square is now, they wouldn't be built. Uh, they would just remain the kind of utopian civic of the civic dreamers. We need to remember what a, what a civic square represents and what it represents to those civic dreamers. And it harps back to the idea of the, uh, of the Greek polis, of the idealised democratic sphere of free citizens, and free men uh, who had citizenship at that time. And so the polis refers to the virtuous and just city. And so the idea is public squares, public spaces become essential for urban democratic life. And that's what those civic dreamers were imagining when they couldn't realise their proposals for a square. At the same time, we must remember that the imposition of particular ideas from Europe was very much connected to the settler colonial project of settling Melbourne and and bringing what was imagined as European civilisation to here, to Melbourne, where there was already a, a highly sophisticated existing culture and existing people as well in the Wurundjeri. After World War II, it's imagined amongst the architects and planners in Melbourne, but also across the world that there would be an opportunity to reconstruct cities and create them afresh from new. And, and the way this would be achieved would be by, by bringing in new ideas for the, for the urban landscape and, and getting rid of all the mistakes of the past. And as part of this redesigning of cities and regeneration of cities and, and comprehensive renewal of cities, there was a very strong civic and public element to that. And, part, and so, part of the many of the plans from uh, from after World War Two uh, in the Melbourne metropolitan plans of of, of that era, there is the, the a greater. Uh, inclusion of public squares or public spaces and the idea is we can enhance the community through them and through those spaces. But so many of the plans that were, were developed at these times was so substantial, so costly and tried to forget everything that was there before. And so it was often difficult, even if there was supposed civic benefit, supposed public benefit out of these projects, they often didn't, didn't live up to the expectation of those architects, of those planners who were bringing those visions in. That leads directly to, to thinking and looking at a, a site like uh, the Gas and Fuel Tower. And the Gas and Fuel towers comes about as, as a project on the Jollywood Rail Yards where Federation Square is today. And it's crucial that although they, they were perceived as, as two awful monoliths imposed on the landscape, blocking sight lines into the city, overshadowing the river, they also had a, a definitive public aspects to them, and it, and there was the creation of uh, Princess Plaza with that, with that development. And So Prince, Princess Plaza opened up in 1966, and it's actually on the corner of Flinders Street and Swanson Street. Uh, it's an elevated public plaza. And when it was first opened uh, in 1966, the Canberra Times reported that, quote, this was an event which Melbourne citizens had waited 65 years to see, end quote. Princess Plaza was an open-air, half-acre, rectangular open space accessed by a double stairway from Flinders Street. So if you, if you were there today, it would be a bit Paul's cathedral and across the road from there, you'd be able to walk up to this raised plaza. And it also fell on top of a retail arcade, and that was accessible from the intersection and it was managed by the City of Melbourne on a million-year lease. Princess Plaza was paved in terrazzo tiles, lit by spherical lamps, and had blackwood seats, shrubs, flowers, and trees. So each of the plaza was then the north and south towers of Princess Gate, those brown monolith buildings which were, which were very uh, unpopular. When, it was important to note that when Princess Plaza was designed uh, according to an article in The Age of 1963 it was actually created, I'll quote, to allow clear view of St Paul's Cathedral end quote, from Princess So even at this time, amid the the height of of modernism of post-war architecture and planning, there is still a desire or an awareness of the context of allowing clear views through and around, clear circulation through and around this very, very highly significant part of Melbourne. And even looking back now, I think Princess Plaza is is a very interesting site because it is a public space, an unsuccessful one, but it is a public space uh, where Federation Square is today. The critics of Princess Plaza described it as austere, windswept, and an elevated island, which provide a little aesthetic interest for attraction for visitors. But it did provide a great viewing platform to see St. Paul's Cathedral. This desire in the 1950s, the 1960s to bring about new public spaces uh, really reached a, reached a, a climax in a sense. The city of Melbourne started purchasing and amalgamating a series of land holdings a, a block north from Federation Square along Swanson Street between Collins Street and Flinders Lane opposite the Melbourne Town Hall. And so a small pop-up city square first opened there in the late 1960s. This is, of course, a very big deal for Melbourne because there's now a, a city square being run by the city with civic intention in the centre of Melbourne within the hotel Grid as opposed to on its edge. The Denton Corker Marshall scheme for City Square, that opened in 1980, but it proved to be quite unpopular. The big controversy which City Square is known for is the vault sculpture, which was in the centre of the site for a few months before being removed. City Square itself was actually opened by... Queen uh, Elizabeth, she comes to open the site and Melbourneians come to, to see that. Uh, when it came to City Square though, like Princess Father, it was unsuccessful. Its confusing layout, multi level pathways, large, austere, impractical expanses, video matrix screens, and hard and bland services were criticised in the press. It is celebrated by the Institute of Architects and Winter Community Design Medal, but it's never really embraced by the city. And so that leads to its demolition in the early 1990s. Until recently, City Square, as we know it, was only half the, the site of the original built City Square at the 19th, of 1980 under the Central Commercial scheme. Uh, where the Western Hotel is today, that was also part of the square as well. The balance of, of it, as we know, it formed a street-level rectangular plaza, and that's also now been demolished for the Melbourne Metro Underground Railway entrance. City Square didn't work in terms of its architecture, but it also came about at the wrong time as well. I'd almost suggest that if City Square had come a decade or two later, it may well have been successful, because something else changes in Melbourne in the 1970s and 1980s. But basically, the Federation Square is what what makes it become so successful as well. In fact, it wouldn't be outrageous to suggest we could have had both City Square and Federation Square, but the timing uh, and various other factors didn't work out. What happens in Melbourne in the 1970s and 80s that, that modernist vision of the city uh, starts to starts to fade, and what I mean by that is, at one stage, it was believed that that Melbourne would be an empty core, uh, that it would people would come into work, and then they would t- effectively drive on freeways out of the city into the outer suburbs, where they would uh, where they would live, a uh, the quarter acre block dream. But what begins to happen from the 1970s and 80s is the re-emergence and a, and a new interest in the inner suburbs and also in the central business district as well. This, uh, and there are various projects and endeavours and initiatives to, to advance that. And, and Melbourne becomes really a, a world leader in terms of thinking about the city, city in, in new ways. So in the 1980s, uh, under-premier John Kane releases their 1984 Central Melbourne framework for the future. city at Melbourne appoints Rob Adams to the new city's Designer David Jenkins at the Department of Planning. You have this this team of people who are looking to regenerate to be revitalise Melbourne, but not in a way that we, we necessarily have to do away with the past. We necessarily have to lead to comprehensive renewal, but will actually lead will actually be done through more incremental change and more with the community as well. Uh, the biggest, one of the biggest factors here is also the emergence of, of the industrialisation. And so Melbourne has to relook at its assets, relook at what it's doing as the, its manufacturing base starts to disappear. So there, there are a number of major projects in the 1980s which start to help people rethink what central Melbourne is. And one of those very famous ones is the greening of Swanson Street, which was very controversial as well. There are, there are ideas of people moving back into the city, of making it into a into a social and cultural hub in addition to being a kind of corporate area that would would switch off at 5 p.m. So Melbourne is transformed, in a sense. So it's, it's worth saying that when it comes to Federation Square, based on what had happened in the city over the previous century or so, that any project in this context would be a challenging one. And part of the rejuvenation of Melbourne which occurs, let's say, from the late 1960s to early 1990s, is that the setting of Federation Square fundamentally changes. And this particularly occurs around the Yarra River. So there's a new arts precinct that's built across Princess Bridge with the Royal Grounds National Gallery of Victoria, and arts centre complex. That starts in the 1960s, but isn't it finished till 1984. There's also the regeneration of the south bank of the Yarra River on the western side of Princess Bridge with the creation of, of Southgate. And then the common, very common refrain, began being said about Melbourne that, that the city would no longer turn its back on Yarra River. And one of the first people to say that was the writer in the age, John Larkin, in 1984, and now it's really kind of part of the common language of the city. So Federation Square is, is designed in a way to enhance this, the North Bank Uh, of of the uh, river, east of Princess Bridge. It replaces Princess Gate uh, and the short-lived Princess Plaza. It takes on increased importance after City Square simply not working out. And it happens in this much broader context of rethinking what Melbourne is as a city, what its life is going to be towards the start of the new millennium. In a situation where manufacturing has declined and, and the service uh, economy, uh, the knowledge, and what would later be called the, the knowledge economy is emerging, and that will mean that new demands are placed in the centre of Melbourne. So the, the transformation of central Melbourne already begun by the uh, early 1990s, and the, the transformation has been continued by Liberal premier Air Jeff Kennett, who was elected in 1992 uh, at the state election. With a, a quite labour fair economic and planning agenda. And a focus for, for him and his new government included continuing the renewal of, the, of Riverside Melbourne. After Agenda 21 comes the Capital City Initiative of 1994. And that is the announcement, that is the initiative, the project that includes Federation Square and it's to be completed by 2001. And 2001 marks the centenary of Australian Federation. So Federation Square is a deliberate monument to nation and a deliberate monument to the city as well. Jack makes the announcement for Federation Square in November 1996 by announcing an architectural competition, and he says at the time, I'll quote, it's the most significant site in central Melbourne, and this proposal will ensure it becomes the primary focal point of our capital city. It will become a year-round people's place, end quote so Kenneth is quite quite aware of the the history of city square and of the desire for a public square and he puts in the, among in the city and he, and he brings us directly into the conversation around federation square when he makes that announcement when premier kennet saw the designs of federation square and the selections from the eminent panel of people on the jury he was a bit apprehensive the designs for federation square were, were quite experimental still quite unorthodox they were quite different to what many people expected of a public square. A traditional public square, in the European sense, would be surrounded by buildings, would be a large flat expanse. Federation Square was not that. It was deliberately not that. It was a a late 20th century, deconstructivist example of architecture coming at the end of postmodernism. So it was a bit challenging for a lot of people, including Kennett. However, however the jury of the competition came to its decision and then Kennett announced, the winning designs of Lab Architecture Studio from London. The winning designs are announced uh, in July 1997 and really reflecting the importance of this moment for Melbourne, the designs are uh, on the front page of 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 every single newspaper the following day. The Age's headline was Square to Transform the City Centre. So head of the jury was this was the University of Sydney's Professor Neville Quarry, and he chaired the, the judging panel and he said in the in the media release, quote, The winning proposal is an exciting, original and clever complex of buildings and spaces which will enrich the city, engage the public with witty and sympathetic architecture, and provide an inspiring addition to Melbourne's heritage, end quote. It was also described as Melbourne's long awaited large, open public city destination. The response of architects to the proposal was generally mixed. Uh, architecture critic Joe Rollo in The Age said the designs were, quote, received with indifference from many in the profession who believe it believe it lacks the iconic quality that of the city's most important axis demands, end quote. Critics also continue to dampen the optimism that it would be as iconic to Melbourne as the Sydney Opera House was to Sydney. The architects who embraced the design were more those associated with RMIT uh, and the experimental architecture community at that time, and they were very enthusiastic about this avant Guard project. The public response to Federation Square was somewhat suspicious and perplexed. Federation Square wasn't a traditional square. It had very unique forms. It had a mix of open spaces, cultural institutions, and hospitality, and commercial leases. Federation Square comes about in the wake of disappointments of earlier civic squares, uh, Yet, yeah, Federation Corps at the same time would depend on the public and on on all Melbourne needs for its success as well. One of the key challenges had been that community engagement was not incorporated into the political and design process for the the commission. An expert planning panel assembled by the state government in 1997 said that community engagement had not been sufficiently incorporated into the political and design process for Federation Square. But there were opportunities for Melbourne to engage. There there was a uh, Your City, Your Stay exhibition, uh, public surveys, town halls, and meetings as well. Uh, At one such meeting in August 1997, I'll quote, Melbourneians turned out in to fire questions for designers who tried to explain the complex theoretical underpinnings of their designs, end quote. Unfortunately, though, public reception had already been swayed by established commentators such as Sahara Barry Humphreys, who compared Lab's architecture studio The Martians in the new science fiction film Men in Black.
0: While Fed Square's design ebbed and flowed with controversy, the Square has succeeded in becoming an iconic civic space for Melburnians. become a place to absorb melbourne's rich history while also providing the key space in which the city revolves we only had to wait a century for it as the designers of fed square found out promptly building a public square was never going to be easy wrought with controversy fed square as we know it was built in a trial by fire in the next episode of anything but square We talked to those that made the square and the tumultuous journey it took to get there.